Hello, everyone. Welcome to a Thursday edition of the MSP Initiative Live. Uh, we are on um, a a post Florida swing here. A uh, lot of a lot of tra- activity down in Florida this week with uh, uh, one of the mid IT Nation uh, summer conference, which is now about security instead of what used to be called Automation Nation, right? The kind of that disappeared and. Now we're uh, we're talking about security, but I was down in Florida for the last few days, getting some cool stuff together uh, for some stuff coming later on in the year. Very pumped, very exciting. Can't wait to show share it with you. But let's get some housekeeping done out of the way. We'll bring on our guest speaker today. We'll talk a little bit about the markets and how that affects everything. MSPinitiative.com. Hopefully you know it well on their sessions in podcast and video format, this session and every other session we've ever done there. Stay tuned for our MSP community block party announcements. Some of what I was working on in Florida. And lastly, channel strong coming to the Northeast near you. If you happen to be, you know, in, uh, you know, kind of basically anywhere from Virginia all the way up to Massachusetts and anywhere in between, we split that between two weeks, first weeks coming up here at the end of June. And then a couple weeks after that, we'll be doing the next leg. So you know, if you're uh, the whole schedule for the rest of the year is online, here's where we're going. You know, we're going into week four out of eight. You can see the rest of the year here. We'd love to see you uh, in person in your in your backyard. Don't need to go too far, hopefully. So uh, definitely head to channel uh, MSPinitiative.com slash channel strong. Pick your cities uh, that <laughs> sometimes people do multiple. Throw your name in the hat and we will make sure we get you there. So. Hopefully, uh, it looks like he might be reconnecting, reconnecting a few times. But our guest speaker, once he's all connected, will be Reed Warren. Uh, If you caught the Tuesday session of of, uh, MSP Initiative Live, uh, we had our friend Dave Scott, who references a lot of what Reed's, um, you know, seeing out in the world. So we figured we'd bring bring in the guy uh, who's dealing with all of the, um, you know, some of the some of the transaction scenarios out there. You know, how's it looking? And, you know. Uh, we're going into the back end of this year. We hear that the economy may, may be roller coastering a little bit. So it'd be interesting to get um, Reed's feedback once he's connected. Uh, but until then, uh, you know how this works, guys, right? We're going we're gonna to give everybody a chance to kind of throw their, you know, put up their hand and, and join the conversation. We like this to be collaborative as much as possible. And, uh, and then obviously, you know, get, get some of Reed's feedback once he's on here. And then, you know, we can kind of have an open dialogue. How's everyone doing today? Good. See that? Came right to you. <laughs> there he is. What's up, Darren? How are you? Um, I'm uh, got a half of the time here, and I got to be on the panel here for. Uh, yeah, you're you're in Austin. Yeah. Yes, sir. Austin. Yes. Austin. Very hot here in Austin. Much much hotter than I expected. <laughs> no, it's Texas. It's the summertime. Yes, it it's, is. It's surely not the desert, because you know that's where shoes go to melt, right? It is. It is not the desert. Did you see the uh, that article that I sent you? I texted you yesterday. You know, uh, it's still it's still in my read list. Let's. Okay. Uh, okay. No, no it's interesting. It looks. Yeah, it's just kind of like whoa. Let's uh, let me pull it up right now. Um, because you do come in some good some good stuff. Mm-hmm. China. Here we go. I love this. China-linked threat actors have breached telcos and network service providers. Well, if that's true, <laughs> it says 
NSA, CISA, and FBI joint cybersecurity advisory. I mean, if they really, I mean, hackers have also targeted small office, home office, routers, network attached storage devices. I mean, I mean the, what was notable. What was notable is that they're basically saying that they're all they've been breached. To, you know, they're they're currently breached. Essentially, is it's like okay, yeah. So, so. if <laughs> if your carrier and telco partner in front of you is already breached, then how exactly are you going to slow that down? Right. It's all, that all out of our control. It's all it's all out of our hands, unfortunately. That, yeah, that but, kind of but, but every but every time we talk about this, right? Whoever the IT IT people are gets stuck in the middle of that crap sandwich, right? Yeah, it's, so, uh, it's a mess. That's not good. I'll share that link. I'll dig it out of my my uh, my cell phone uh, in a second here. Um, so I'll go into some some current events since we're waiting for for Reed to uh, fix his Zoom there. But um, so of course you know uh, the 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 corresponding you know, press with all the stuff that happened down in Florida this week here, you know, that ConnectWise conference, IT Nation, secure. One we mentioned actually on Tuesday, if you guys didn't catch it, right, they have two new partnerships that they announced. One, one of this control case, compliance as a service. I was like, okay, that's interesting. get their customers uh, cybersecurity insurance. And I thought that that was interesting because I didn't know if people were interested in putting all their eggs in that basket. Darren, you know, bring you up all the time whenever we say that. But um, so a little bit further on that, right? So Fifth Wall says they have like 30, uh, I think in the last article I read, it was like 30 different, 25 to 30 different um, insurance vendors behind them, right? And, um, you know, this is like the big thing now, right? Everybody wants this cybersecurity. You know? I don't know. Does it make you feel better or worse, you know, with the affiliation? <clears throat> I know, Darren, you, we've had many conversations. About oh, yeah, I, but, I mean, yeah. there's, there's different, you know, different people will be comfortable with different solutions. I'm not sure that, uh, you know, I think having an integrated insurer is there are some benefits if, if uh, you know, you can look at it from a perspective of, of making some sense. And then I think there's some drawbacks too. But anyway, so you can let the read jump on there. Yeah, no worries. I was going to share this last one on that and then we'll uh, now reads all connected. But uh, yeah, so basically they're like, hey, we're going to give you easier tools to do the insurance application process. And obviously the idea is like you're already pulling data from the tools that we're giving you. So maybe that'll help, you know, get you a better outcome. I don't know. That's the that's the pitch. It seems. Um, chew on that for a second. Breed, how you doing today, buddy? Hey, doing a lot better now that I'm connected. So welcome. <laughs> person welcome. showing up and screens not going and apps uh, not responding. And I, I know a couple of IT guys that might be able to help you out. Yeah, if I had a good managed service provider, I wouldn't have these problems. Yeah, exactly. That's a per perfect example, right? So uh, timely, right? Because we had we had uh, our pal Dave on earlier yes. in the week. And uh, he, 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 he kind of reiterates your, you know, something that you were published, you know, on uh, a little bit earlier this year saying, 
Hey, you know, if you're, if you're not really growing and you're not designed to grow and you're not set up to grow, probably time to sell now. Um, and Dave kind of was like, Hey, listen, the value, you know, the, the, the multiples and the, and the, and the deals that are happening now aren't going to happen later. And we're all, and we all see the gas prices going up. I know it's, you know, right. it's over and over again, but it's hard not to notice driving down the road. I was in Florida for the last three or four days and like average was four ninety nine. Like when I saw four sixty nine, I literally did a U-turn in the middle of the street and yeah. like, you know, I was like, I was fast and the furious into the gas station. So, um, you know, that means interest rates are going up. That means, up. You know, so, so that means that, you know, the, I think the world bank came out uh, yesterday and said, Hey, we're definitely, you know, going into a recession. So this, this is it. We're, we're now staring that in the face. Right. And, right. you know, everybody, you know, put the pandemic out for a second, right. Everybody remembers 08 and everybody remembers, right you know, what happened, you know, in 2020, 2021, like, what does this mean now? Right. I mean, everybody can like get lean and batten the hatches and be smart about spending money, right. but from a borrowing perspective, it's going to be harder from a, I didn't realize by the way, just, he said it and I kind of, you know, kind of tattooed out on my brain. I didn't realize that when you do mergers, right. You take a couple companies or two companies and you smash them together to make a larger company. Yeah. That's a tax-free transaction. Uh, well, when you do a merger, yes. So if you if if the currency is actually equity, uh, you're not creating a taxable event. So that's been one of the arguments around trying to, uh, candidly, why so many of the mergers have been going on. Where if you hey, I'm in a peer group and there's two or three of us, we agree philosophically, we'd be better uh, together. Yeah, you can you can merge into a larger entity, increase your value by 20, 30, sometimes 40 percent by going larger and you haven't created a taxable event for yourself until you obviously exit. So your, your basis, uh, when you not to get complicated, but your basis stays the same as if you owned it. Um, and as you go into that kind of merger, but it is, it is a tax-free, it is a tax-free event and it allows you to be able to, uh, get to your exit number, uh, typically a lot quicker. Again, got to do it with people you trust. So that's the downside to it. Yeah. So. We, we, we've talked in the past about what happens when everybody has equal ownership and people disagree, bad things yeah. happen. Um, and it gets dragged out in a bad way sometimes. I mean, so. But when we know, do that though, to, to that point though, when you, yeah. when you do that, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like, a, I don't want to make it sound like celebrity weddings, but it really is about having a really good prenuptial is really how that works, right? And so when you look at going into a merger situation, um, I, I'm just going to tell you, you definitely want an advisor working you through that because there's a lot of elements. But the reality is you can set up uh, partnerships to actually work well. And you just have to define those exits. You have to find those plans um, in advance. And so that when you get to those troubled spots, everybody knows the, the program. Everybody knows how it's going to go down. And you really save yourself a lot of the, a lot of the grief uh, by planning ahead on that. So it's, it's, it, it's interesting, Reed. Like we've always talked about MSPs and how all this stuff comes together. We'll talk a little bit more about it, but for a second, um, you know, I, I hate to bring it up again, but it's, you know, and a good example of it, right. I'm, I'm sure Darren will pop in and maybe somebody else. So when you look at the data Kaseya deal, right. There's, yeah. there's like a breakup fee. Yeah. Right. They're like, Hey, if this deal doesn't go through by this date, Right. You're going to pay this and I'm going to, or I'm going to pay this. Right. And it's like, like they, they, that's part of this prenuptial thing, right? Like, Hey, we're going to go into this. And if it doesn't happen, then here's what the outcome is. Similar with the Twitter, Elon Musk thing, right. They have something like that. And then, 
you know, a, a subject that's near and dear to my heart. Um, <laughs> Frontier uh, and Spirit were supposed to merge, kind of JetBlue, which right. I'm not a fan of right now. JetBlue did not do me well <laughs> yesterday. Um, came in and said, hey, we're going to sweeten up our offer and we'll give you a better, if it doesn't go through breakup fee, here's $350 million. And I'm like, you know, like it's crazy, but on a smaller scale, these are what the, like right. we're talking about on a smaller scale, what the big guys are doing as well. Yeah, I, I think that the, the breakup fee is justified on the larger ones. I haven't seen a breakup fee in any transactions on, where the transaction value has been under 50 million um, in revenue, uh, just simply because there's just typically not uh, enough expenses to justify the break, breakup fee. Um, but that said, you know, we are seeing people get more creative. Uh, first time ever, I've seen somebody, a buyer actually put down uh, earnest money uh, at signing a letter of intent, which I've, I've never seen before. Uh, wow. I thought that was interesting. Um, not sure how you get it back if it falls apart, but that's similar to what we're talking about here, where it's basically uh, something of a, a breakup fear. I'm in, uh, you know, putting money down and because I want to show that I'm definitely committed to this uh, process, especially if you're not in a place where, uh, where you have to go to, to, to bank financing or some other place that may put the transaction at risk. Uh, coming back to the merger conversation, um, you know, the, the prenup, the, what you're talking about there is covering between the letter of intent and close, right? What we're talking about and having the prenuptial agreement is really once you're closed, um, the only reason, so we get pulled into a ton of partner transfers where it's like, hey, I've got this deadbeat partner, how do I get rid of them? You know, we do the valuation, we help that whole process. And, and so as a general rule, we're, I'm not a big fan of partners uh, because everything starts out well together and very, very few of them end well together. And so the only reason why I would say you, the ones that end well together are the ones that have really done their due diligence around putting together good exit strategies around what happens when there is a fallout, because we're going to presume a fallout, right? And as a result, we can do we can negotiate that on the front side and make sure it's fair and amicable to all parties. Um, and, and I don't want to get too lost in it, but there's a lot of ways to set it up well so that, hey, if I'm the one who says, hey, I want out and I'm going to make you buy me out. Well, because I'm the one initiating, I'm going to, you know, pay the sort of a, a fee for doing that. So in other words, I'll get a depreciated value because I'm the one initiating the, the breakup. Now, it's still, you know, it's still healthy. It still works. I'm not getting screwed on it. Uh, but the, if you come to me and say, no, Reed, I want you out. Uh, hey, then I get the premium because you're pushing me out. You're going to pay the, the discount because you're the one initiating um, the, the exit in a pre, you know, in a pre-planned way, um, it really helps it go smoothly. But I would say really, when you look at the merger, it really is, uh, about, Hey, we're coming together. We're coming together really for a single purpose, uh, and partnerships work well around a single purpose. So when you're coming together and saying, Hey, we have a single purpose, we're going to, uh, purpose, we're going to integrate, and we're going to go to market in two years. And our plan is to, after we've integrated, we're going to be worth two or three multiples higher as a result of it. That is our exit strategy. Now what you're doing from that integration or prenuptial agreement is what happens if that plan doesn't work? So in three years, if we're not there, uh, what happens? Well, at this point, what happens? Are we going to dissolve it? And you're just going to systematically work through it. You can dissolve it or you can say, no, somebody may go, no, I really like this thing. I really don't want to sell. I want to keep running it. Okay, then I'm going to force you to buy me out at our preplanned you know, mouth. All right. So, so let's 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 throw a couple of curveballs at you. <clears throat> so so one, uh, we know the VC and PE and like non-traditional bank money is what's driving a lot of this dialogue yep. in in our in our sandbox. 
not just at the software level, right? You see MSPs become like face right. MSPs and they start acquiring other MSPs. There's still a lot of MSPs out there. I was just telling Dave. At least hey, look, you know, of them. Right, depending on who you talk to, it could be 80, 100, 125,000 MSPs. All right, so let's say 10, let's be very aggressive and say 10% get acquired or merge. Still leaves 90%. There's yeah. a lot of MSPs out there. And like, what happens if somebody just wants to granularly grow, Reed? I mean, in my opinion, and I'll, and I'll, I'll see if you agree, and maybe you say, nah, maybe you're a little bit aggressive. So like, if you don't, if there isn't something that's going to happen in the near future, like before the end of the year, there might be a couple of years here, two, three, four years to get out of whatever we're about to go into. Okay. Right. So if you're not in a position where, Hey, you know, I'm, this is what I do for, you know, my, my, my main money generation, right. everything's cool. I'm not interested in really getting crazy. I'm just going to continue to, you know, run my business. And like, let's see on the other end of this, maybe I'll reconsider because time's passed. Right. Yep. What are, you know, versus the guys who are like, now's the time if, or else if I wait to 12 months from now, this multiple that we keep talking about, it's going to be half or less or whatever. Right. What, what's, what's the next 12, 24 months look like? Yeah. Um, well, I looked at my magic eight ball this morning and hey, uh, I, I, I have one. I can, I can send it to you. Right. Um, no, I think, I think a couple of things. It was, it was really funny. Uh, and I know uh, you, you probably know Ramsey Shagan with Evergreen. Um, and, uh, it was really funny. I had some notes cause he and I were, and I were on a panel in, in 2019 together and we were talking about M and A. And so I was asking him at the time what it's doing. So I was just actually looking through my notes, um, from that 2019, um, IT nation event. And, you know, at that point, Hey, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, for a platform company, we would pay, you know, four to five X, uh, trailing 12 months EBITDA. You know, if they were, you know, under 2 million in EBITDA, if they were over 2 million in EBITDA, we might go, you know five to six, right? And and that was 2019. So if Ramsey, if you're listening to this, that was then today, it's a different, it's a di just radically different market. I mean, it's almost twice that. And that's just, you know, two and wait a bit, twice higher? Twice higher. Yeah. Wow. So if, you're two, if you're 2 million in EBITDA, you're, you're, well, we just closed the transaction uh, here June 1st, 2 million in EBITDA, and it was a $16 million transaction so wow. 8x multiple on, on 2 million where at that point it was uh you know it was uh, about a five so it's not half you know it's not double but it's up obviously significantly from that you know where does it where do we look at in the in the next uh 24 months i don't expect any um material changes until actually probably the next election uh there'll be some i think some tax we'll see where things go from a tax perspective um you know part of there are just so many things driving it the biggest thing driving the the multiples today is all the money in the private equity space. Uh, we are still dealing with the largest amount of private funds available in U.S. history, um, and they've got to put that that money to work. And their work, I mean, private equity companies are working really hard to but, find. But but, but, wait, but wait a minute, teach me here. Like the stock market's not doing well right now. Right. How does that affect the private equity guys? Um, they love it because people that aren't making money in the public markets are going to look to the private markets and the private market has done really well. So IT services have done very, very well. And you look at the infrastructure managed services, that market just by itself is doing 10.8% year over year growth right now. Right. And so um, now you're writing a, a broader market. And if you're, you know, if you're investing in top quartile firms, 
hey, the probability that you're going to get a greater than 10.8% return on your investment is pretty high. That combined with if you're able to take advantage of what private equity is doing of consolidating the firms and then being able to flip it, it's actually a better, better return on investment and actually sometimes a lower risk on investment than dealing with the public markets. Now, your money's tied up for a longer period of time, but the returns are well. And, and we've got a number of our clients are private equity firms and, and you know, they've, uh, you know, 39 portfolio companies and, you know, they're getting a return on invested capital, you know, between uh, 3x return on invested capital to as high as 21 uh, times return on invested capital with averages that are in that 5 to 7x return. Hey, that is really good return and you can't get that in the public market. And so when we will often see this in history where when the public markets become volatile, a lot of those funds shift out of the public market because of the volatility and lack of control. And I'm going to move it into something that I have a higher level of control on. And it's going to be in the private space. So I'm going to do that through private equity companies. And so we have a number of factors that are coming to play here. One, instability in the public market is driving private market activity. The great rates of return that we're seeing in the private space, particularly in technology, um, is accelerating that. Um, and, you know, quite candidly, we have this unique situation where you have um, inflation higher than interest rates. So in the end, and I don't wanna get in, I'm not an economist, just like I'm not a tax advisor, but I play with taxes and I'm not a CPA, but I have to weigh in on those things, right? So, um, so I'm not an economist, but in the end, one of the strategies for how do you reduce your overall debt is to create inflation and the government's doing that, right? So how do you minimize the effect of the, the trillions of dollars debt we have well, if you have inflation go up, then your debt, because it's the fixed expense, becomes a smaller part of your overall budget. And the ah, same thing is kind of true. So, 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 the, so the, the, the money printers are actually, there's a reason for this. Yes, I think so. That's just my opinion. Um, and I'm not a political scientist either. So <laughs> I got it. I understand. But, but I think to that point, when you look at it right now, as much as we've seen uh, interest rates go up, um, interest rates are still across when you look at it from a historical perspective, are still relatively low and they're still below averages that are there. And so there is this realization that says, hey, I'm going to borrow money while my cost of capital is still below average. And because we're, I'm borrowing money in five, six percent and the, in, and the inflation is at eight percent, that because kind of cash is king, um, that it's, it's worth taking the risk and doing that right now and borrowing the money because the inflation rate is, is higher than that. So again, if I'm borrowing money and, and on an economics perspective, if I'm raising my rates to my customers, when you think about in the business, because of inflationary reasons and, and cost of labor and those other pieces, if my debt is fixed over a period of time, then as a percentage of budget and as a percentage of revenue, my debt load becomes a smaller piece, uh, a decreasing um, expense over time uh, because of those inflationary pressures. So, so, <clears throat> so by the way, this is great information because basically... As you, you know, you make them, it's the, the, the game of money, I call it. Um, when it comes, uh, read to the people, like I know, you know, when, when people have to get their companies valuated, you know, like the percentage of project revenue versus hardware revenue versus subscription, uh, you know, resale subscription based services versus reoccurring labor, right? Has there been any material change in the, the revenue makeup? and how people get valuated? Are they like, eh, we really don't count project revenue. Like we just cut it off or, hey, you know, this, my, all these, and now security is real hot, right? All these security services that I'm reselling, 
you know, that are reoccurring, but it's just, it's somebody else's, you know, it's like office three, six, five, I'm just doing a markup. Right. Or something like that. Does that eat, does that hold the same weight as, Hey, I'm, I'm, here's my reoccurring labor solution. Right. You know, that's kind of how, you know, any differences. Yeah, certainly there continues to be differences. I would say the main differences between the reoccurring and non-reoccurring elements of the business or revenue streams. Um, We're seeing companies today, um, I would say there's a, I don't know if, yeah, there's a declining level of, certainly a declining level of interest and also um, declining, I don't know if the multiples have changed much on it, but there's less and less interest in the the one-time product, one-time project uh, type type world. Um, and so there's a lot that we do from a sell side that to, uh, to combat that. Uh, one is recognize that most product and project work happens for reoccurring customers. Therefore, even though I don't have, uh, I realize the project may be one time and the product may be one time. The reality is I'm going to get their business because they're on some sort of uh, subscription service. So those subscription switching now between um, product uh, subscriptions and service subscriptions, where you have like the Microsoft 365 you know, and others, in the end, uh, it's our opinion that both are of nearly equal value because people aren't going to leave you over Microsoft subscription. I, I mean, I can't get it cheaper somewhere else, so I'm not going to really leave you to go to somebody else because they've got Microsoft, you know, Office for, you know, a little bit less than what you do. Uh, the reality is the move point. The reason why they're going to leave you is your delivery of services. So uh, even though from a true valuation perspective, there is a difference between the two, I would say buyers today are becoming more and more interested in what's your to- overall total recurring revenue versus non-recurring revenue and seeing that move. And I would just say, we've got clients, we have a number of clients that do it very, very well. You, I'm just going to tell you, you have to figure out a way to convert your project work into recurring services, build it into your subscription. Um, I have a number of clients that actually don't officially charge the customers for the project work. It's all built into the subscription. And, and they just have figured out the math to amortize it effectively, correctly over a period of time and over the length of the contract and it becomes their justification for longer contracts at higher rates. Um, and in the end, because it's built into it, they end up with better utilization rates to that whole process because the customer isn't looking at this as a, oh, I've got to get this done in the next 30 days. It's now built into my subscription. So it's going to get done over a period of time. So there's a lot of factors that are really inflating that. And then from a transaction perspective, you know, they're looking at a place where, well, if I convert, you know, if your typical MSP is 60% reoccurring services, 20% product and 20% project work, if I've found a way to convert my 20% project work into a subscription model, now I'm at 80% reoccurring. And now you're getting really high premiums on that. And then you can do other things on the product side to simply build that in either as a... So so let me ask this this question, Reed, because... You know, Microsoft NCE was still, you know, not so long ago and other things, right? Like, so does it, does the way that I invoice change how that's viewed? Like, instead of, if I bundle all of my, my reoccurring subscription SaaS and labor into a single thing versus I broke it all out, it's still reoccurring, but that way, like it's line items versus bundled. Does that really make a shift in, in the math? Um, I don't know that it, um, I, uh, it shifted the math. So anytime you itemize things out, it allows somebody to pick it apart. And I would say the more you bundle it, the harder it is to pick apart. And so from, let's talk about it first from a customer perspective. In the end, most customers, they, 
they're not looking through that with that much detail. And in the end, if you have it itemized out that I'm using VoIP at a certain price per you know phone versus somebody else, now I'm going to come back and say, well, yeah, but if I switch this up, maybe I could go somewhere else. And the reality is this: if you bundle it, you lose that, and it becomes truly I'm your customer staying with you because of your value proposition, which has to do with the services you actually deliver, and less so about the products you're bringing to the equation. And it's their overall customer experience that they're really valuing. And so, in the end, I, I personally would work, move to packaging and having minimal uh, itemization as, as you can effectively have with your customer base. Uh, from a buyer's perspective, if I'm buying, uh, buying a company, um, I, I'm less concerned, you know, I would, I would say it's not an issue from an invoicing perspective. It's more, hey, are you tracking things clearly in your financials that says how much is products, how much is these different things, how much is your BDR, how much is all those elements? Um, but you're tracking it from a revenue stream perspective. That is a separate element from your invoicing. Okay. And then- And that should be really articulate. You want yeah. that as unpackaged as possible, as broken out as possible. Yeah. So like, you know, on the back end, what your, yes. what your actual granularity is, but to your yes. customer, it's like, here's your bill, right? It's all right. in. Here's the it's agreement. Yeah. You know, I'm not right. trying to nickel and dime, you know, McDonald's edition. So what about, do you feel, you know, have you seen people get a lower valuation based on the fact that their security offering may not be all the way there or they're, they're missing, you know, maybe they don't have all their housekeeping done in terms of compliance related stuff for their MSP. Their financials may be great, but they're missing these other pieces uh, that are now considered kind of required from a, you know, the marketplace. Standpoint. Yeah. So I, I think the the whole cybersecurity element is, is going to be a, really an industry disruptor. And you were talking, we were talking earlier about, you know, what's, what's going to happen. What is the, you know, upcoming, upcoming years look like for you guys. Um, and I think, you know, should I just hang through and just keep organically growing? Um, there's, there's a lot of risk on the horizon from the security element to it. And I think what's going to drive so many of the smaller MSPs effectively out of business, and I don't want to be, you know, a, a threat uh, here and a doomsdayer, but the reality is, is the cyber risk is a real one. And you need to, and, and even from the stuff coming from the White House, which is you know, looking at a June 2023 timeframe, if you're a managed service provider, you got to become compliant. That's an expensive lift. And so I think what we're going to see uh, here over the next, you know, really 12 months to 24 months is there just a lot of players who are going to sell rather than go through that migration or sell rather than run to continue to run the risk of, um, of the cybersecurity element. And it does take a pretty mature operation to be able to run a SOC. There's a lot of compliance required to it. And there's a lot of costs associated with it. So in, in the end, I think what I'm saying is if you're a, you know, sub, really a sub 2 million in revenue MSP, I think you're going to find it increasingly more difficult and increasingly more expensive uh, to continue to operate as a lifestyle business. You're, you really are going to be in a place where you either got to go big or you're going to have to kind of go home. But, or, but what or about home. every, I mean, I feel like every vendor on the planet, and we just talked about ConnectWise in the, in the beginning yep. of this. You know, like you can, you can outsource that stuff, right? I mean, I don't, you don't need to run your own sock and I surely don't want people trying to do, you know, you know, analysis of all the logs, you know, internally, they could just sit there for days. So like, I mean, I would say the majority, I, I'm going to throw a number out there. I'm just, you know, finger up in the air, um, like 95, 97%. They're not doing it on their own, Reed. They're outsourcing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree with you on that. The reality is though, uh, I think there's 
it's surprising the number of MSPs who haven't gone down that path. And, and there is a lot, the, the longer you go down that path without having a service offering. So that there's two elements to it. Obviously, uh, the service offering you're selling your, your customer um, is one element. It is also, and that really what I was getting at too, is more you as an organization uh, being compliant with all those different elements. Yeah, no, totally get it. It doesn't get easier. It definitely gets harder. Because it's one thing to resell a service. It's another thing for you as an organization to become compliant and maintain that compliance. And that's yeah. So, so, so Bruce pops in the chat here and says, yep. uh, worked hard over the last several years to go from a single use, user price with everything bundled to an a la carte line item on our invoices You know that details everything. It has been tremendous for us to control our costs and explain to our clients what they buy from us. We have also moved the majority of our clients to an all labor included to amortize our NRR into our MRR and ORR, right? Correct. Um, I highly recommend I highly recommend these moves. Bottom line is that we're getting eaten from a thousand cuts of the upstream vendor charges that we were simply not billing to uh, for to our customers. Now our clients have an incentive to help us control the cost because they actually see the line items. What do you think about that? I think it's double edged uh, per- personally, and and it's you know coming back from the days of coming out of the consulting space and trying to itemize those costs. Yes. There's ability to be able to, the, the nice thing is you're able to go and say, hey, Mr. Customer, the reason why I'm raising rates is because, you know, these vendors raise my rates, therefore I have to do that for you. Um, it, and so it's a way to proverbially pass the buck. The challenge is when you itemize it, it becomes easier for other people to displace, right? Because now they can do a line by line kind of look at, at what's going in there. And I, I would just say some of uh, examples uh, that I would have and happy to have the conversation offline uh, in more detail, but more and more of our companies that are in that top quartile that we're working with um, are becoming bigger and bigger on those moving parts. And they're just moving into regular rate increases as a way to, to just say, hey, everybody knows that inflation's there. Everybody knows that talent's more expensive. Um, I've got had customers that have been doing regular 5% annual increases. Customers aren't pushing back on it. I've got one customer that's actually decided to do, hey, because we can, we're going to do another rate increase. Um, and they only had one of their customers, they're a $10 million firm, only one customer on the second rate increase in, you know, in, in a year um, that actually said, hey, what's going on? The rest of them just kind of kept rolling and didn't even challenge it, right? So, um, and in their case, they're not calling out all those different itemized different pieces. So, so five, 5% is kind of like the ballpark of the annual increase? Yeah, I, I mean, it, I think people are getting uh, are getting used to it right now. I mean, end customer is, and I don't think most end customers are hitting the panic button because they can't afford to have the service stop, right? And so there's obviously a balance that you can have with not gouging your customers. But right now, I would say most of the reason why you're having to articulate that is because you don't have a pattern of good rate increases. And part of running a healthy business is having standard rate increases, having your customers educated on it. And then this comes back to some of the that customer profile that uh, just says, hey, if you have a customer that's always challenging every time you have a rate increase, you know, is it now really a customer that you're really having profitability? And that really comes down to that profitability by customer analysis that you should be looking at as a good business owner, because you're going to find that a lot of those are really beating you up on your prices in the end are the ones that are costing you the most. And maybe, you know, a customer you should go bless your competition with. I mean, some of these metrics, uh, I call them uh, shark tank analytics, yep. that's just a George term, 
Uh, maybe I just watched Shark, Shark Tank, but um, you know, like cost of customer acquisition and uh, you know, customer like uh, total lifetime value, and like these are some of the you know things that pop up in more SaaS style companies, right? Yeah. But do they pop up at, in a service provider style company as well? Yeah, CAC um, is yeah, cost of customer acquisition um, or customer acquisition cost is a very, very real thing. And, and I wish more people um, uh, would actually look at that. And that's really looking at your reoccurring revenue streams and what is your um, atrophy on that revenue stream versus what's your replacement on that revenue stream. Um, and there's a whole metrics and a formula for it, but it's a phenomenal metric for actually tracking highly reoccurring revenue businesses and knowing whether the reoccurring revenue businesses uh, one you should be in or you should be out of. Because a lot of people talk about, hey, I've got high reoccurring, but in the end it has to do with your uh, customer churn and that cost of uh, acqu customer acquisition cost uh, really builds into what is my churn rate uh, on my reoccurring revenue. And it's, it's a, let me put it this way, larger firms and more mature operations are gonna deal with it and they're gonna look at that very critically. And if you don't fall within a, a certain band, on, on the ratios, uh, yeah, it becomes a reason for getting out of it. That said, um, it, there's a, it, it's not a simple lift, right? So there's a lot of things that need to be looked at in a material way, including your contracts. And so I would just say your typical uh, MSP that's under you know, 10 million in revenue typically doesn't know what it is and hasn't even looked at it. So it's not one of those things, um, we've, we've used it, um, but it tends to be more of a complicated calculation. And in the end, um, since most people don't need it, I haven't got spent a lot of time on it. Ah, so Tim pops in and says, hey, you mentioned that 2023 White House thing. He's like, where can we find more information on what this is? Uh, he says he's currently working with clients who have CMMC requirements, uh, but not super familiar with whatever the 2023 date is. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a couple of things. And, and um, I have a couple of clients that do. Um, Compliance auditing, CMC, CMMC compliance auditing. Right now, it's kind of a version two is in a in a am, ambiguous state as to when it actually is going to become a requirement. Uh, there's increasing pressure, um, but one of the things that's on the table, and I would put this in the category similar to, hey, plan taxes for 2023. Uh, they're not here yet. It hasn't been put into place yet, but uh, um, I, I can certainly get that dated for you. But really, the the White House is trying to push or the administration is really trying to push down that not only uh, do the contractors have to be compliant, but really this whole managed services sector that we're a part of, um, the providers have to also be uh, compliant with that. And, and there's a lot but what, of- But what do they define as the exactly. manager? Is it, is it in size? Is it just, you're, you're, you're like a lawyer, right? You're providing legal services, so you count. Like, yeah. how do they define that? Yeah, good question, more to follow. Yeah. Uh, okay. You know, sign the bill first and then read the document afterwards, I think is the way the policy is going to go down. <laughs> okay. Well, we love those, right? We're like, they didn't even know it was in and they just, you know, well, but, but I think, I mean, there's a lot of, um, from a federal government perspective, the reality is, is, is there are so many people a part of that whole uh, food chain into providing services to the government that the government's kind of realized that we have to do some macro policy changes. Um, and, and I don't think that's a bad thing, right? It's, it's the reality that says, hey, if I'm building washers, if I'm an, um, you know, a, a manufacturing firm and I'm doing building washers for some government contract, that, manage, or that um, 
manufacturing firm needs to be compliant. Well, now who's providing the managed service to that uh, organization? That could be you, right? And so what they're trying to say is you may not be on that grid, uh, but because every company out there in America today has pretty much some managed service provider, uh, we're going to really try to govern that all the way down to say, hey, we want to make sure that there's good compliance all the way down so that regardless of who's making washers or from there, everything to more technical pieces is, 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 isn't creating some sort of uh, potential breach for the security of the United States. So you, th- you think we'll hear more about this before January 2023? Well, you know, the hard thing with the, with the government on a lot of these things has been, hey, we've made a push, then we realize it's too big a lift for the private sector and the private sector is not going to get on board. So we bump the dates out. And so that's where it's been kind of a 2020 or kind of a catch 22 situation where there becomes more interest, but then it's a lot of hoops that's got to go through uh, before it actually gets rolled out um, on a material way. But it is definitely something that's coming and something that, you know, I think in short, you can wait till you're mandated to do it, or you can be proactive and be a leader. And I would just say, be proactive and be a leader uh, when it comes to not only making sure that you're in compliance with uh, those potential standards, uh, because it just quite candidly, if you look at NIST, it's a good, it's a, you know, best practices is really what that is. And you should be, you should be leading your cust, you should be leading as an example to your customers of becoming compliant with that. And not well, they, they come, you know, and say, okay, now you're mandated to do it. And then you've got this big lift and a business disruption uh, to be able to, to manage that. So. I was talking to somebody two weeks ago. Now, granted, we were talking about SaaS valuations, not MSP valuations, but I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it out there anyway. We do a Yeah, he said high growth is great, low churn is great, but high growth and low churn, and you're negative on your bottom line, your EBITDA, or you know your break even. That's now viewed differently than it was, you know, five, eight, ten years ago, where you, know, you could be in the red, but as long as your growth rates are good and your churn rates are stable, yeah. we're going to give you a pretty good valuation. Now that's not necessarily the case. Well, uh, I'll probably answer that a little bit different. It depends what stage of the business you're in, right? So there's still a lot of money, mostly venture capital, who are going to invest in uh, companies that have revenue but don't have profit uh, because they see the trajectory toward that. Private equity is not going to get in that space. Private equity doesn't engage until you're profitable, right? And so you have angel investors who are going to really come in pre-revenue, pre-profit, and they're going to expect a pretty high level rate of return. Um, as a result of being that early in the process, they get bought out by typically VC, uh, who are saying, okay, now that you've got a proven concept, you've got revenue, um, we're going to help you scale and grow and, and deal with the profitability to take it to basically a private equity buyer who's saying, hey, I need that growth rate and the profitability where I'm not going to invest. So I think that 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 information you got is true when you look at a lot of the private equity space um, who is saying, hey, look, and, and then case in point, I have a SaaS client. We helped them sell. Um, well, the owner had five companies, five different SaaS companies. We helped them sell two of them. Uh, they were in the healthcare space um, and they got a, uh, in short, they got about a 4X multiple on revenue. Um, they were also highly profitable. Top line, so, yeah, top line revenue. Line. It was a 11x multiple um, on on EBITDA, so both of them were were very very healthy. The the bigger fish or the bigger opportunity was in a third company, uh, but that third company was just barely making producing revenue and was not profitable, but had the opportunity of absolutely eclipsing 
the two companies, right? So in the end, it was a 20 some odd million dollar uh, acquisition for the two companies that were profitable and had revenue. And the, the private equity company totally passed on the third company that says, no, you keep running because it's, it's just not there. I don't even know it's going to fly. Well, that company's flying. That company's going to have a $100 million valuation in, in less than three years. That private equity company is very, very interested in doing the acquisition, but they wouldn't have done it because it didn't have the it didn't fit their paradigm and it didn't fit their thesis, right? And so we do see that from, from that perspective where uh, private equity has their thesis of how they're going to get to the return on investment. And candidly, you know, there's a lot of, put it this way, there's a lot of companies that never get to profitability, right? And as a result, they're like, no, we'll wait, we'll pay a premium because now we have a known entity. And it really comes down to those different investment theses of those different investing groups. So, so okay, just to categorize things to make sure I got it right. Private equity wants something that's running and already making money. Yes. Venture capital is willing to take a risk. Yes. And angel investors, which is like a smaller version of venture capitalism, they're like in on like, your, your idea may not even be online yet. You're like yeah. in dream stage. That's correct. Yeah, okay. I've got a picture. I got this dream. I think we can build it and I can build it. That's where an angel is going to go, wow, that sounds really interesting. I'll invest in that, right? Or won't invest in the case would be. And they'll help you get to revenue, but they're usually not going to ride it all the way out. They're going to ride it to the next investment round, which is going to be venture capital. And we're saying, hey, I'm going to know that the concept works because you're producing revenue. Um, and then private equity is going to say, I'm buying you as a business because you're actually producing money. Okay. So the people that are funding guys like, and, and Darren already dropped off, like the Casayas of the world, right? Who are like, hey, we raised $6.2 billion. We're going to buy this. We're going to buy that. We have all 30 companies. We can. Is that private equity or is that venture capital? Uh, most of that's going to be private, effectively private equity. I mean, that's going to be their piece. They're going to, but there's two elements that when you fund a large uh, organization like that, which has to do with, can I get it to market, right? And so they'll dabble in some of the, hey, if you've got a product uh, that really has shows opportunity and you may not have recovered those costs or you may not be profitable, but I know that the only barrier to profitability is scale. And it says, okay, you can't scale it, but I can scale that really fast and I can plug it in and I, you know, and the same thing, ConnectWise is doing the same thing, right? They're, they're buying these different elements out. Microsoft, they were doing it long before everybody. Um, you know, and Bill Gates bought DOS from a couple of guys in a garage and then put it, called it Microsoft DOS and went big with it, right? And that's how that whole program started. It's the same concept um, that just saying, hey, I'm willing to take as a large organization, I have the ability to scale things radically faster uh, than people that are starting out. And so I'm just going to look for those companies that show promise or have um, operational maturity and then acquire them, both them in, and then radically accelerate them. Okay, so, so it's kind so, of a tweener state. Yeah, so taking all of that into account, right? Like for everybody that's watching this, I mean, if everything is based on the trailing 12 months, I know in some conversations, it's what's the, the projection for the next 12 months, right? So it's like a two, it's like a 24 month swing, right? You could materially change a lot of things within a short period of time, get your trailing, you know, to, you know, a completely different point by cutting costs, running lean, whatever, right? Maybe you merge a couple companies and then you have redundancies, you break them away and, and whatever. And then you, it really, it doesn't have to take very long to change your, your position, right? Well, um, the answer is yes, you're correct. I would just say I've never found an investor that only looks at 12 months 
trailing or forward. Um, okay. So in other words, it's usually weighted is, is what practically happens or pragmatically happens. So in other words, like, yep, you're trailing 12 months, your run rate, that gives me a great sense of where the business is today and I can build around that. But I'm actually going to go back typically at least 36 months to be, because I want to see where your trend is. I want to see if you really are growing, not if you, just, hey, you had this bump and nobody knows why. Uh, so they want to be able to show a trend line as opposed to a spike. Um, you know, when you look at trying to position your business for, for sale, if that, if you're looking to sell, it really is a lot about, Hey, what is my trailing 12 months and what is my current run rate? Um, and so if my current run rate's been good, is really good and it's showing a trajectory, um, Hey, that builds confidence for the buyer that you're going to be able to sustain that. And again, not to beat on the recurring revenue piece, but if as much of that is recurring as possible, it becomes way more bankable. And I'm going, okay, I see that I can you know, bank on the fact that yes, you know, your uh, MRR grew from let's say 100,000 to 150,000 the last six months, which is great. I have great confidence that that 150,000 is going to continue obviously for the length of the contracts and it builds confidence that I can sell upon that, right? So I think from that, you know, to your, to your point, that's where you're looking forward 12 months because that becomes your run rate. And if I have a known trajectory of how much business you've been able to close, Again, this comes to sales maturity, that if you can show that you've been able to convert in your conversion rate on your leads and your sales opportunities, I can now look at your pipeline and forecast pretty effectively what your growth rate is based upon your historical performance. And then I can build on top of what your current run rate is. And so companies that have good sales maturity, have good operational maturity, um, really you start to move to the place where I can do sell the business almost off of the upcoming 12 month trajectory based upon that historical performance, but the confidence for that, your ability to do that has everything to do with your historical trends. So where it gets hard is when somebody has been flat and all of a sudden you're growing and you're trying to say that's a new trend line. Um, people get, buyers get kind of go, well, maybe, maybe not, I'll do an earnout because if you really hit it, yeah, I'm happy to pay you for it, but you don't show a propensity to actually be able to do that. So. I but, see. And, that, and that's where the devil's in the details, right? How these deals are structured. Yeah. Um, guys, if you have any questions, definitely bubble them up to the top. I got a couple more I'll throw out there because these are all things that I've talked to people along the way, right? And they just come up in conversation. Let's say somebody who out, like, generally speaking, IT services, you know, their bread and their butter is their labor, right? Yeah. And they outsource the stuff that they're not specialized at. And, and then they do this, you know, kind of the front lines and management and, and whatever. When you have people who end up, outsourcing to like uh outside help desk outside network operations i mean obviously socks a similar model but on the security side maybe put that up you know the numbers change right because now you're shifting a, you know, more of that reoccurring revenue out in order to service you know the, the end customer i assume that changes the math from a valuation standpoint because your EBITDA must must be different right well you're even a typical i mean whenever you outsource it's more expensive to out, well, generally more expensive to outsource uh, than to than to insource. I, I say that generally uh, because it's well generally true. But the, you know the 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 part to it is the reason why you outsource it is it's too hard of a hill to climb to insource it. Right. In other words, you're saying when you look at the level of training, when you look at the amount of exposure to build really build out a good. If, again, if I'm a ten person organization, my ability to build out a sock is limited, so I better outsource it. Right. Because I I just I can't retain the people. 
I can't build the knowledge base, so it makes a lot of sense to outsource it. If I'm a larger organization, yeah, if you have the, you'll find that it, you'll hit that capacity level where it's, hey, it's cheaper to have it in-house than it is to, you know, to, I say outhouse, but outsource it, um, uh, put it out there, right? So there's always this, this balance on that. Obviously, it's more valuable um, for, well, as a general rule, it's more valuable to a buyer to have it in-house versus uh, outsource, right? That said, I know a lot of private equity companies and a lot of buyers are going, well, if it's outsourced and I already have that service, I know I can cut that off and recover that cost. It becomes part of why I'm going to pay a premium for the business, not because you're doing the work, but because there's a consolidation effect that I can harvest that you can't, can't quite candidly can't harvest without me, the buyer, being in it. So um, it is it is a, I would say it's double-edged from that perspective. Sometimes it'll work to your advantage, other times it, it won't. Um, sure. But my general feeling is be good at what you're good at. And if you're not good at the cybersecurity, then outsource it. Outsource what you're, what is not your core competency. And, you know, just to your point, uh, George, with what's happened with Bevoid, I mean, for most people, it's too late in the game. Don't do it. Better to outsource it than to, to try to manage yourself and build You'd your be own. be surprised. Career. A lot of people try. Yeah. Um, so Bruce comes in and says, what is the common length of a transition employment contract? For an old owner that gets bought out, right? So like, hey, part of the deal is, you know, like, and again, every deal structured differently, right? Well, but if the owner stays for a set period of time, uh, I guess what's the, you know, what's the, is it two, three, four years? What's, what do you, six months? What, what's the common time there? Yeah. So let me answer that two ways, not to be ambiguous, but it depends on what you want to do, right? So a lot of people are like, hey, I'm selling because I want to take risk off the table and I'm really not ready to retire. I want to be a part of the thing going forward. And then you're talking, it's a three-year, five-year is not uncommon. If you're saying, no, I'm really wanting to exit, then the answer to that question is, uh, can you take a three-month vacation? If you can take a three-month vacation, then you can be done in 90 days. Um, and so we just closed a transaction re recently where the, the owner was you know, active maybe 20% in the business and, you know, sold the business. He's effectively done basically day one. Um, but that's because he's built up a leadership team that can run without him. And so he's not needed quite candidly uh, to harvest a business. So when you really comes down to your timing and your agenda, right? So if you're saying, hey, I really want to be done and I really want to walk away from it, then you really need to have raised up a leadership team that can run the organization without you, such that the only critical component that you're bringing to the business is uh, direction. So you're saying, hey, we're going to go conquer that hill. We're going to grow at this level. We're going to, I'm going to hold the team accountable to it. You're providing executive leadership and visionary leadership to the business. Uh, if that's the role that you're in, then you're really positioned really nicely to be able to exit in pretty short time frame because the, whether it's a private equity or portfolio company or something else, they're going to bring in that executive leadership to provide that direction. If you're the one that's pulling all the wrenches and the business, you can't take a one week vacation because the business would fall apart without you being there. Then you're probably looking at a, a minimum of three years um, to be able to exit because that's how long it's going to take for them, for a buyer to be able to extract your knowledge of your business out of you before you'd be able to exit. I got one more wrinkle to that. And then I got another one real quick before we, we uh, yeah. close up. But so, but in that example, you really need your employees to stick around in order for you to exit <clears throat> it, what, it, it, I don't think it's that uncommon that when an event happens, sometimes employees like, I'm checking out, moving on to the next, right? And then right. that could disrupt things now. Yes. Yeah. So there, there's a number of things that'll get put into place on that. If you have a, a 
So typically, when you get to the place where you have strong uh, a strong management team underneath you, usually they have some level of equity or phantom stock that's going to incentivize them to stay afterwards, right? Um, or they have a benefit in the transaction occurring. And so there's not too many times where you find a sole owner who you know, really doesn't have anything in place. I have yet to find an owner who's built out a good management team, who when they sell doesn't, even if there's not something officially in place, doesn't you know, reward their, their leadership team for being there. And I would just say typically what happens in, the, in a transaction perspective is you're gonna create some sort of stay bonus. Um, and so sometimes that'll be a, you know, um, you know, I'll go to, you might go to your management team and say, hey, you know, I was going to give you 5% right of the transaction. That 5% is coming, you know, basically 12 months after the, the anniversary of the transaction or 24 months. And so usually it's a, a blend of funds, both from buyer and seller to incentivize access. The buyer doesn't want that leadership team to leave either. Uh, they don't want to be held hostage by that team. And you as a seller, um, most of the time, although all cash transactions are becoming more common. Um, again, um, usually have some sort of deferred payout or you have a rollover equity. And so you're, you know, you're incentivized in that way to make sure that that, or you want that leadership team to be able to stay in place. So it's a joint venture on making sure that team uh, works together long-term. hundred percent. So Kicker brings up one that, um, I mean, it's happened a couple of times now. He's like, what happens if a big player, right, gobbled up a bunch of MSPs, becomes this nationwide MSP? He brings up Office Depot, for example, or, you know, pick a name, right? Um, you know, like he says, but what does a nationwide, like an Office Depot to become an MSP for all time? You know, like, yep. we've, <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, we've seen these big guys come together and then they kind of, you know, like become unmanageable at some degree, right? Oh. There's just too big and not nimble enough to actually compete. Yeah. I don't know. You tell me, I mean, obviously there's some early ones that set the the trend on this whole thing, but there's a lot of guys following. Yeah. There's a lot of companies trying to be that right. And, and, um, you know, geek squad tried to do that with, with Best Buy and there was that whole piece and Best Buy thought it could displace everybody, uh, in the, you know, have the retail store and the guys driving and it didn't really work. Um, I, I think the reality in the end is, is it's very, very, very difficult and nobody has yet come to the market um, that really has the, the um, personal interface and high customer interface that you as a managed service provide to your local customers because they, they do want somebody that cares very much about them. And the larger the organization gets, the harder it is to be able to keep that customer care front and center. Um, and so, and it just becomes too unwielding. So, Yes, there's companies trying to do that, um, but I don't, I, I don't see that happening anytime soon where you really have a player that becomes a household name like a Xerox with photocopiers um, that, that really consumes this whole place. Microsoft tried to do it with the MCSE, which you were talking about earlier, and they failed miserably. I shouldn't say failed miserably. It didn't succeed. Let me put it that way. Um, with trying to create their own, you know, uh, basically service offering around their own stack. They, which is why they've stayed so dedicated to the partner community is because as a large organization, it's too hard to be personable to all the different entities that require your attention. Fair. So there, there is, there is a, a blast ceiling somewhere, but that doesn't mean they're not trying. Yeah. And every company is, it's got, I mean, there's a number corporate technologies, Marco, uh, there's a number of them that are, you know, going after it. 
and and it's not that I don't think they're going to succeed. I just think that they're they becomes they're going to take in the end it'll become more of a commoditized play. Um, and then if you have you know sort of like the why isn't there one real estate you know agency across the U.S. Well, it's just too hard. You need people in every place that are doing the you know the personal services. Uh, nobody's been able to roll up the CPA market or the legal market. Um, just be, be for all the same different elements. And I think the reality is going to be true for the managed services place. There's always going to be a space uh, for the for the small local uh, infrastructure provider. I, I think the biggest risk to that that we've talked about is that cyber security element at this point, where you're just going to have to be a certain size to be able to effectively manage that. But in the end, that won't become uh, that won't become a national entity unless we become a socialist society and then there's only one you know government run managed let's not let's not think about that 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 one and i'll be in ecuador at that point so we'll we'll be wait for we'll wait for the movie to come out on that thanks everyone for jumping on this session was recorded you can find reed warren where at itvaluations.com so read at itvaluations.com there he is it valuations and this session We'll be online uh, hopefully later on today under sessions on MSPinitiative.com. Reed, we're going to have you back. Don't worry. Can't wait to see you in person. I know it's coming. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm counting down the days, uh, but stay tuned, my friend. Appreciate right. the, uh, the heads up. Thank you. you. All right. Take care.